0: What a powerful song. Thank you, Shelly and worship team. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He's in the waiting? Do you believe He's never failing? Do you believe that in your life? Do you believe that in your family? Do you believe that in your marriage? Do you believe that in this church? Well, let's open the Word. Let's come to the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, not everything's going to be on the screen today, so I encourage you to either open a paper Bible or get there on your phone, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1… Uh, while you're turning there, First Corinthians chapter 1, uh, men, I particularly want to invite you to join me tonight at crew night at 5.30. This, this movie, this film, The Heart of Man, probably one of the most powerful movies that I have seen. And uh, the images in that movie speak to issues that I, I certainly know that I have and do wrestle with that I think many of you do. So I encourage you to come tonight at 5.30. We are… Uh, We are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Before I begin reading in verse 18, let me pray. We pray to you, Father, who in just your goodness, you have revealed yourself and your truth to us in this word that we have before us. We pray to you, Lord Jesus, the Son, who is the living embodiment of the word and most completely fulfills the Word. And we pray to You, Spirit, the one who illuminates the Word, who uses it to convict and move and change us. And we ask, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to Your Word, that Your Spirit would illuminate it that, and do the work in our hearts that You desire to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, for to those who are perishing The message of the cross is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is God's power. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where are these experts? Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the gospel, of the message preached. For Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those of us who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power, Christ is God's wisdom, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, he uses inclusive language there. Consider your calling. Consider who you were when God drew you to Christ. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful in the eyes of the world. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise. God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the things that the world considers insignificant and despises, the the things the world views as nothing, so that He might bring to nothing the things the world views as something, as significant. Why? So that no one can boast in His presence. But from Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Paul's experience, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? So that your faith may not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power." All this flows out of uh, what we covered last week, really, where Paul begins in this letter after initially encouraging them, he gets right to the heart of what was going on in that church. And as we looked at last week, goes on to some degree in every church, some more than others. It, it's what we see back in verse 10. There were divisions that had developed there. The word is schismata, where we get schism from. It literally means a tearing apart. There was a tearing apart of that church body, and, and there was quarreling there. Quarrels is, is not just disagreements. It, it's strife. It's, it's, it's disputes that have become bitter, that have become emotional. This is what was going on in Corinth. What, where does it come from? Verse 12. What I, I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And we looked at this in depth last week, but I would just highlight something else this week. Do you notice that in that language it's not, well, I really like Paul's preaching, Or I really prefer how Apollos teaches. You notice the language? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. It's it's, it's the language of exclusiveness. It's the language of rivalries. Where do we see this in today's Western church culture? Where do we see this? Well, I certainly think we see it within churches. I think we see this kind of rivalry, this kind of exclusiveness, this kind of competition in churches between certain teachers becoming popular, church I was saved in, there was a, an adult Sunday school class. We called it Sunday school, not connect group, so I'm going to be using that term through the sermon today. There was an adult Sunday school class taught by a man named Bob. Bob worked for parachurch ministry. He was fairly well known in that parachurch ministry for his speaking ability he was just a wonderful, wonderful speaker, engaged all ages. Well, guess what? That became the class, the adult Sunday school class that everybody wanted to go to. That became the popular class. And it wasn't that Bob wanted it to be that. It's just Bob was using him and Bob was gifted, or God was using Bob and Bob was gifted. And and so that became the class that people wanted to, 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 to be in. And and there developed even this, this dynamic of, of, oh, you're not in Bob's class? You're in Joe's class or whatever? Looking down their noses at, at people who would choose something other than the popular class. I think it manifests itself as well in churches with, with people who become more devoted to a particular pastor than to the church itself. I was in a church for many years where there was a very uh, magnetic, pastor, a pastor with a magnetic personality, what we might call a charismatic personality, just drew people to him, but, uh, but was caught in, in adultery, an ongoing uh, adulterous situation, and, and had to be removed and, and did not leave well. And when he left, he went to another church, and there was a, there was a segment of that congregation that had so bonded with who he was, his personality, that they followed Him. They followed Him to the, to the next church He went to, and then when He went to another church after that, they followed Him again. They were, they were His following. I, I think as well as within churches, I, I think we see this kind of exclusiveness, this kind of competition, this kind of popularity contest between churches in a city… I think to some degree this explains the rise and decline of the popularity of certain churches based upon the star status of their preaching pastor or their their worship leaders. I think this explains to some degree why, why some people in larger churches look down their noses at smaller churches. And in reverse, I think it explains to some degree why people in smaller churches sometimes look very critically at larger churches. I think this kind of spirit of competitiveness, of popularity, of rivalries, of exclusiveness, to some degree explains the phenomenon of what I would call serial church hopping, of people who go from church to church to church based upon what's the in-church, where's the buzz, what's the popular church. You know people like that. Maybe you've been someone like that. Why do we do that? Why do we get caught up in the church? Why do we get caught up in personalities and popularity that so easily rots into competition, rivalries, division, and strife? I think that's why why Paul goes where he goes. In the rest of chapter 1 here and into chapter 2, I believe that the text shows us this primarily in a contrast between two terms that he uses over and over again. If you look, read through this chapter yourself, you'll see two phrases come up over and over again. One is the wisdom of the world, and the other is the wisdom of God. And I think Paul says you want to know where your divisions, where, where your competitiveness, where your exclusiveness come out of. It. It's, it's come out of that you buy more and more into the wisdom of the world than you do the wisdom of God." the wisdom of the world, the world's wisdom… Uh, here, here in summary, we're going to go in more depth in a minute, but in summary, the w- world's wisdom is the values of our culture that seep into the church and feed the fleshly tendencies that divide us. By contrast, the wisdom of God is what is really true in any culture at any time. What, what is real spiritual reality summed up in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the world's wisdom in Corinth was the cultural belief that you could actually raise your social status based upon following the most popular speaker, orator. Obviously, they didn't have the media that we have today, but they had, they had public speakers, they had orators, and, and uh, they prized rhetoric, they prized public speaking. So whoever was the hottest new speaker drew the largest crowds. And this attitude seeped into the church. Paul addresses that in verse 9, and here'd be my paraphrase. He says, if you are impressed with the wisdom of a man… With, with how magnetic a personality he has, if you are captivated by the cleverness of a speaker, you're going to be disappointed. Why? Because God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That, that's a quote that Paul borrows out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, 14, and it's describing a situation in Israel's history where some leaders rose to prominence turning away from God, and in the midst of crisis, in the midst of turmoil in the nation of Israel, this is basically what they told the people, we got it. We got it. We know what to do. Just follow us. We know what to do. And it turned out very, very badly. And Paul says if you depend upon the wisdom of the wise from a human perspective, if you depend upon people with, with clever speech, they will fail you. They will fail you. Ultimately, they will fail you. He goes on in verse 20 there, the wisdom of the world promotes the wise man. Do you see that term there? Who is the wise man? The wise man or the wise woman is that person who has the aura of being successful, of having it all together, of being sharp, of being smart. Are we impressed by those kind of people? Yeah, let's be honest. We are impressed by those kind of people. He says… The wisdom of the world tells you that you should believe everything you hear from the scribe or the scholar. Who is that? That's, that's the person who, who claims they're the expert, that based upon their education or their credentials, I got it. I have the answers. Listen to me. I will solve this problem. We gravitate towards those people in the world. Those are the talking heads on, on cable news. The wisdom of the world seeks to manipulate our feelings our emotions through the persuasiveness of the debater or, or some versions say the orator of this age. These are the Oprahs. These are the late-night hosts. These are the TED Talk speakers that know how to grip us emotionally and, and pull us in, and the world says, that's who you want to hear. Those are the people who have it all together. This is how the culture seeps into the church. We absorb these values. We absorb the wisdom of the world. We absorb it almost every waking moment. So it just seems natural when, when we want to be part of the, the church, we, we want to be part of a church that makes us feel successful, that makes us feel wise by that definition, that, that we want to listen to leaders who tell us, I got all the answers. We want to follow teachers with magnetic personalities that draw us in. That's the wisdom of the world. That is the values of the world that seeps in. And Paul asks there in verse 20, where are they? In other words, where are they in, in, in the loneliness of your struggle with depression or lust or grief or whatever it may be? Where are they in their ability to touch you where you really need to be transformed? If it all relies on their personality and their skill and their ability. Where are they when you need them most? Paul says that if we put our trust in human personality, human performance, human popularity, then we are in trouble. Why? Because end of verse 20, God made the world's wisdom foolish. All of these things are antithetical to how He really transforms through the message of the cross. What we really need in the loneliness of whatever it is that we struggle with is not some magnetic personality, not somebody who claims to have all the answers. We need the message of the cross. That is what transforms us. You know, this has become increasingly clear as our culture has become increasingly post-Christian. You know, it used to be that uh, Christianity had enough social acceptance that, you know, a person would go to church even if they really. Weren't that that interested in the message of the cross because it was kind of socially the thing to do, but that time has passed and has gone. And now the world is not impressed with the church. The world is impressed with power and appearance and success. And a world that, that prizes those values will never be attracted to the ugliness of a crucifixion. It will never be attracted to the weakness of a crucified Savior. That is foolishness, the world says, and that's what Paul means in verse 22 when he says that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Jews, the religious people of that day, they were not impressed with Jesus because He refused to display His power on their command. He refused to be the genie that they wanted. The Greeks were not impressed with Jesus because He refused to fit their popular intellectual models. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. A true church will never be attractive to people driven by success because the message of a crucified Savior sounds weak to them. And a true church will never draw people who pride themselves on their intelligence. Why? Because the truth of a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners sounds like foolishness to them. So if we are all about the world's values, we go in a whole different direction than the the message of the cross that really saves us. The wisdom of God, Paul says in verse 18… To those who are perishing, yes, this message of the cross is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, the message of the cross, that's where power is. That's God's power. That's transforming power in our lives. The the wisdom of God is is Paul's stock phrase for God's marvelous plan of how He's going to save us. And that plan is not something that the world in all its lust for success and power and status and self-fulfillment would have ever thought up on its… on its own. I mean, that is so contrary to the success, self-affirmation, self-fulfillment thinking of the world. But that's exactly how God designed it. Verse 21 Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, we couldn't get there on our own. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel, to save those who believe. And so here is the reality God does not save anybody because they are popular, because they are successful, because they are attractive, because they have a certain level of intelligence, because they have a certain level of influence. God saves those who turn from the wisdom of the world and by His grace trust in Jesus and rely upon His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for their sin. Again, foolishness to the world, but the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul drives this this home, this contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God in verses 27 and 28. And and I've just got a summary up on the screen here, so you may have to look at your own versions there. But think of who it is the world values, but then who it is God actually chooses to save. What is the world value? Who does the world say should be saved? The world values those who are wise, those who seem to have it all together. The world values those who are strong, who have influence, who seem to have power. The world values those who are something, those who are the big names, those who are well-known, those who are significant. But who is it that God chooses to save? The wor- God chooses those the world thinks are foolish. God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, Paul says. God chooses those the world thinks are weak. God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong, Paul says. God chooses to save those the world thinks are nothing, insignificant. Their lives aren't important. Those that the world actually despises, Paul writes, God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things to shame those who think they are something, who think they are significant. So let me ask you, with this contrast, if this this is true, if this is spiritual reality, why would we want to get caught up in popularity? Why would we want to gather around personalities? Why would we want to bring these worldly values into the church? Why is the wisdom of God so contrary to the wisdom of the world? He answers that question in verse 29, so that no one can boast in His presence. You see, if, if my standing before God, if 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 who i am spiritually is based upon i'm i'm a smart person and i got it on my own or i'm an attractive person or 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 i'm successful or i ha- i have certain financial resources or you name it you fill in the qualification there then what do i boast in i boast in me my pride is in what i bring to the equation of my salvation but that is not the case and and, and, and God, God brushes all of that away. Therefore, as it is written, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our only basis for boasting, our only basis for pride is that God, for reasons I can't comprehend in His sovereign grace and His love decided to save me when I was undeserving, when, I, when, I, when, when so many other people around me, He should have saved before He saved me. So how can we participate in any kind of competition, any kind of rivalry, any kind of popularity contest between our preferred teachers, between worship leaders, between worship styles, between churches? I mean, isn't that boasting in in something other than the Lord? Isn't that finding some basis to say, I can be prideful about this, even if we'd never mouth those words? How can we boast in that? How can we be engaged in this? Verse 30, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, because of Him. You are saved because of God's sovereign grace. If you've turned to Jesus Christ, that is because He brought you there. So how should we think about um, what we want in our church, what we want in our pastor, what we want in our worship leaders, what we want in our teachers, what we want in our Sunday school classes, our, our connect, group cl- uh, connect groups, what we want in our small group studies. I mean, really, how should we think about this? I think that's the model that, that Paul lays out in the first five verses of chapter 2. And, and I've summarized it here, so again, you'll have to look at your own text to get, to get the full wording of it, but I think he gives us some things to avoid And then I think he speaks to some of those of us who are the preachers, are the worship leaders, are the leaders. First of all, negatively, what are we supposed to avoid? Don't focus on personality and style. That's what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. We are so caught up with how this person looks and how they sound and whether they can put words together well and whether they seem to have that charisma that we are looking for. And that is the values of the world that we bring to the equation. And Paul says, don't focus on it. You can listen to the most inexperienced speaker, teacher, worship leader, and you can hear the message of the cross. And that's what you focus on. Secondly, he says, don't be distracted by human weakness, verse 3. I was with you, Paul says, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And we don't have detail there of what Paul is talking about. That's probably a good thing. That may have been something about his physical appearance that, 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 that was, made him really kind of hard to look at. That may have been uh, his voice. That may have been something internal to him. That may have been a, a level of depression that he battled whatever it was, they saw his flaws. They saw his weakness. And, and some of them used that to push away from him and, and what, what God wanted to deliver through him. And I think what we get there is we're not to be distracted by human weakness. Every pastor, every worship leader, every teacher, every small group leader, every connect group leader has flaws. And it doesn't take you long to see them and find them. And if we make our choices on who we're going to get the message of the cross from based on flaws, we will go from one preacher or one worship leader to another to another to another because we will always find those flaws. Let me ask very practically, when, when you find out that, uh, that, that, that you know, maybe, maybe a, a younger person is filling the pulpit, less, less experienced is that a Sunday that you decide to skip or go out for coffee? Or do you recognize that even in that inexperience, God can powerfully use that man? And, And do you come not wanting to pick apart how they may preach what they preach, but wanting to hear the message of the cross? Do you come believing that God is developing that man or that new worship leader or that new connect group leader? to deliver more powerfully the message of the cross. Don't be enticed, thirdly, by words of man's wisdom. Paul says in verse 4, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom. He's speaking to the culture there. The culture prized the speaker who is eloquent, even if he had nothing to say. The culture prized words, the form, more than content. And Paul says, don't get caught up on that. Maybe it's a speaker who can tell these compelling stories, but if they have nothing to do with the truth of the text, that's just all rhetoric. That's just all empty rhetoric. Don't be enticed by that kind of thing positively. For those of us especially who preach, who teach, who who lead worship, who lead connect groups, who who lead small groups, whatever it may be, what is Paul's model for us? We're to proclaim the testimony about God. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, I came to you announcing the testimony of God. That is, God's revealed truth through His Word. You've heard speakers like I've heard speakers who 75, 80, 90% of what they speak is personal stories and entertaining stories and jokes. And oh, it's delightful to listen to, but it's not the testimony about God. Paul says, proclaim the testimony about God. That's what you, and I'm speaking to me, will be held accountable before God before. Secondly, focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says in verse 2, I determined to know nothing about you, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That doesn't mean that Paul never preached anything else in Scripture except the crucifixion and the resurrection, but it meant that Paul continually went back there, went back to the cross with the passing of Billy Graham this week. I, I mean, I think we see a real illustration of that that Billy Graham made his life, made his ministry, made his message about leading people to the cross. For him, everything else was really secondary. He got criticism for that kind of thing. But how many souls now know Jesus or even in heaven because because Billy Graham preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified? So that is where we have to get to in our preaching, in our teaching, in our worship leader leading, in our small groups, in our connect groups. We need to continually come back to the cross. Thirdly, deal straightforwardly with the gospel. It is difficult to… Well, Paul's reference, first of all, not with persuasive words. It is difficult to talk about the fact that we are sinners, that we stand condemned before God apart from Christ because we rebel. We are rebels against God. That is not popular for our culture to hear. And so it is easy to wrap that up in persuasive words, to kind of, you know, sugarcoat it, to kind of water it down. So we're not using words like sin. We're not talking about we need to be saved, those kinds of concepts. Paul is saying, be careful of trying to wrap the pill that we really need in sugar. Don't, don't get taken in with persuasive words. Deal straightforwardly with the gospel. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and make that gospel spring to life in a person's life. We need to present the, the gospel over and over again, clearly and straightforwardly. And finally, how do we know that the Spirit is really moving. Look for the Spirit's power and transform lives. Paul says, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power… You know, we come to church sometimes and, and we just want to feel something, don't we? You know, we want to be moved sometimes at church. What we're really… Even if we haven't thought about it at this level, we're, we're looking for a demonstration of power. And, and I… And I think… I think that's a good thing but I think it's too easy to make that subjective and whether I'm emotionally moved by worship or by the preaching or by whatever it is. And Paul says, you want to know the real demonstration of power? It's in whether your life and others' lives are being transformed. Are people being convicted by the Word? That's evidence of life transformation. Are people making decisions to repent from their hardness to God. That's evidence of life transformation. Are people growing more and more into the image of Christ? That's evidence of life transformation. That's evidence of the power of the Spirit and where He is working. Look for the Spirit's power and transform lives. I'd sum it all up this way. When you think about the wisdom of the world, which so easily leaks into the church, and the wisdom of God and the message of the cross and how those two contrast. If you walk away with nothing else, consider this. The wisdom of the world leads us to say, oh, man, he's a great preacher. Man, that's a dynamic worship leader. Oh, wow, what a wonderful service, and what a great performance. The wisdom of God, the message of the cross, leads us to say, wow, what a marvelous Savior. What a marvelous Savior that's what we're about. That's what we're about. That's what the world needs to hear. We will never impress them with our success or our popularity. We present to them, even though it seems foolish to them at first, we present to them with a marvelous Savior, which is their only hope, which is the true power of God to change their lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we turn to you as the author of all wisdom. Lord Jesus, we turn to you as the embodiment of wisdom, as the, as, as the one who made wisdom real and live among us. And Holy Spirit, we turn to you as the one that transforms our minds and hearts to become wise men and women. And we need You, Lord. We, we admit that the values of this world, the wisdom of this world, too easily leach into our lives. We need, we need to repent from that. We need You to transform us, that we are more and more about Your wisdom, the message of the cross, even if it sounds foolish, even if it sounds weak, even if it sounds powerless. Make us people, Lord, who are about the message of the cross that is saving us and that an unsaved world needs to save them. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.